everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for episode six of season six of the Revise and Resubmit podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. And I'm Dr. Annalisa Boland, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies, also at the University of Alabama. And we both work in the Institute for Communication and Information Research, or the ICIR at UA. Okay, so I'm going to start us off with questioning today, in part because I'm hoping for things that I need to online shop for. Um, all right. <laughs> the master plan, and what stuff does that include? And do you have a life jacket or a helmet or shoes for Luna or Remy? Ooh, disaster planning and online shopping. These sound, sound like things I need to be doing right now or right now. a long time ago. <laughs> um, so excellent question. I think my answer is until our conversation today, I thought I had a plan. And I thought I was pretty prepared. But after learning more from our guest about how to properly be prepared, I think I have a little bit more work to do, which means online shopping. Right. But to be fair, when I had children in my home, I think I was much better prepared. We had a rope ladder that could be thrown out of any of the windows on the top floor. And we had one by each of the windows. We had a hammer by each of the windows that could be used to break the glass. I had a fire extinguisher in each of my daughter's closets and they knew how to use it. And I had blankets in each of the rooms upstairs for use of um, a fire or smoke, even if it were to reach the top floor and they needed to get under something to get to a window. But as our guest tells us today, some people learn from having experienced a disaster or crisis and others less so. So I've learned from an experience and I was prepared and then they moved out and my preparation has gone down. That's, that's the summary. So what about you? Do you have a plan for you and your pupsters? So, uh, kind of, um, I mean, I have, I I, kind of have a plan for me and how selfish does that (laughs) sound? So I And for myself, I think I have a whistle. I definitely have an expired fire extinguisher. <laughs> helpful, helpful. Right? You know, you think you like, you get it, and then you're like, well, it's it's like Best Buy dates. I mean, surely you get like ten more years out of it. Maybe I need to look into that. Um, I definitely have dog life jackets in my Amazon cart and little booties for them. Um, I have not yet looked for puppy helmets, but again, like I might move the things from the cart or like in the safe for later. I might yeah. be moving those things to the cart and purchasing like super soon. I think that's a great plan. So today's guest, Dr. Suzanne Horsley, is an associate professor of advertising and public relations here at the University of Alabama as well as being the assistant dean for assessment and accreditation. She has a lot of jobs and a lot of high (laughs) titles. But she joins us today to tell us about how we might think about disasters and crises in productive ways. That's right. And she introduced me to something I hadn't heard before called high reliability organizations. And I'm not going to spoil what that is or anything (laughs) more to say I want to be a high reliability organization like within myself all right without more suspense it's <laughs> a pleasure to welcome Dr. Suzanne Horsley to revise and resubmit welcome Suzanne
Thank you so much for joining us today, Suzanne. This is season six, and you are going to be episode six, and we are thrilled to be able to have you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Okay, so Suzanne, what we do is we will start and end with a couple quick and easy questions. I hope they're easy. The first one is, where are you from? I'm originally from Suffolk, Virginia, um, which is in the south, uh, south uh, the corners, uh, east corner of the state. And I lived in Virginia most of my life before um, I gave up a well-paying job and went back to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. We'll hear more about that. I'd like to know more. <laughs> so the next quick question is, what do you do for a living now? So I'm an associate professor um, in the Department of Advertising and Public Relations at the University of Alabama, and I am uh, teaching public relations classes. Mostly, I teach intro to PR, um, crisis communication, media related topics, and also qualitative methods on occasion. And um, I'm um, doing my research in crisis and disaster communication. So I take a subset of public relations and look specifically at the people who um, are having to communicate in some of the toughest and most trying situations. Mm. Okay. I am so looking forward to hearing all of that. Um, (laughs) But before we ask you those questions, we've got one more fun one. Um, What did the young Suzanne want to be when she grew up? Did you envision yourself as a professor after you made a lot of money in the previous job or did you have like another vision of of what you wanted to be when eight-year-old Suzanne was running around um so professor was never on the radar until I was in my 30s (laughs) so that was never (laughs) a thought um yeah so when I was younger I loved to write I you know, if I had a writing intensive class in high school, that's what I signed up for. Um, and I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I thought I wanted to be a print reporter. And so I, my junior year in high school, um, I got a job at the Suffolk News Herald and um, in the sports department. And I didn't get the job in the sports department because I knew anything about sports. Um, (laughs) I I got a job um, covering like local high school sports and stuff. And I got 50 cents a column inch. It was very exciting. Um, And five bucks if they used my photo. It was really, really a big job. Um, And so I, uh, I, I found out, of course, I was terrible at writing sports, but I was really good at writing human interest features. And so that's what my editor would start assigning me was he would go talk to this family, the whole family plays tennis, or go talk to this guy who was in a yacht race and survived being wiped out by a wave, you know. Um, So I ended up doing a lot of human interest features for the sports section, which was a lot of fun. Um, And then one day I was out covering um, boys, baseball tournament and I got hit straight in the eyeball by a foul ball and ended up in the emergency room and discovered I don't like being a newspaper reporter (laughs) (laughs) and 
Um, and it was two weeks before my senior portraits. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but it was, you know, I learned a lot about myself during that year of writing sports. Um, and then, yeah, in, in college, I was an English major, of course, still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And being at a liberal arts school, I didn't know what public relations was until the very last semester when I got a um, an internship at a local hospital and the rest is history. Hmm. Oh, okay. Um, so tell us a little bit about the next step because we know grad school came into play at some point. So can you walk us through that and then tell us as you were going through that, how you landed on the research that you're doing now, or if it wasn't what you were doing, you can tell us that too. Oh. Well, um, I ended up working in public relations or public affairs for 10 years in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and, you know, I, I really liked it. I got to write, which is something I always enjoyed. I got to talk to people, interview them. Um, you know, it was, it was really kind of a fun job for my skill set. And I um, really had a, a big change on 9-11. Um, mm. I, was watching, I was watching what was happening on television. Um, at the time, I was working at Virginia Commonwealth University um, in their media relations department. And I was, we were all sitting around the TV watching what was happening. Um, and I was so frustrated that as a communications professional, knowing all the skills and talents and abilities we had at our disposal that there was so much confusion. There was so much misinformation. It mm. was so difficult for families to find each other. Um, you know, this is pre social media days, of course. Mm-hmm. But it was, mm-hmm. I, I was, I was just so frustrated by the fact that, that something like this could happen in the United States and then there would be a complete communications breakdown. Mm. Um, and so that was kind of a turning point for me. And by the next year, I was applying um, for graduate school. And um, by 2003, I had enrolled at UNC Chapel Hill in their PhD program. And um, the school, um, at the time, it was the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. And um, I got a great committee of faculty uh, who were incredibly supportive of me wanting to look into crisis communication in the public sector. And one of my um, committee members was in the School of Public Health. And he was the one that said, hey, if you want to study this, you really need to do it. You need to, mm-hmm. to experience it. And that's when I became a volunteer with the Red Cross. Wow. Um, and so I started in Chapel Hill and um, eventually got enough training that I started to deploy to these national level disasters doing public affairs and handling all the national and international media who came into town um, so that I could support the local folks who really needed to maintain those relationships with the local media. Um, So I was taking care of the national folks who just flew in for a few hours and left never to return so that the local communicators focus on continuing those relationships in their markets. Um, and, and that gave me a lot of experience um, and uh, on-the-job training and um, just a, 
great insights into what it was like to really communicate in these disaster situations. And that has had a big influence on my research. Wow. Um, okay. I have, I have, I have a question here. Yeah. And I, I, I want to see if there's a relationship between your covering sports um, <laughs> And then the work that you've done in disasters. And, and so my question there is, is there always a crisis in human interest or vice versa? Is there always human interest within crisis? Of course. I mean, it's all the human experience. Um, you know, a lot of the stories, even that I was writing for local sports, were about the human struggle and people wanting to achieve goals and encountering obstacles. Um, so maybe I never thought of it that way, <laughs> that those two things could be related. Um, but, you know, that, that focus on the human element has really driven all of my research, actually. Um, I, I get so frustrated by research studies that say, FEMA said this, or the Red Cross said that, or the state government said that. It, those entities cannot speak or think or do. It's the humans in those companies. And the humans making those decisions. And a lot of times those humans are making decisions about how to communicate in a really difficult situation while they themselves are under a lot yeah. of stress. Um, it was um, that, that bit of realization in, in grad school that really has driven my, my research to focus on the people that do these communication activities mm. um, and how are they trained, how they're prepared, what are some of their characteristics and traits that allow them to do the job, what are the obstacles and barriers that they encounter while trying to do their work. Um, and it's, uh, you know, that, that's the part that's really intriguing to me is these people that do the work. Um, so yeah, I never thought about it, but it could be somehow related to my little sports gig, who knows? Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like that, 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 that was what you were, that was what was noticed that we were, you were really good at. And so I think that that kind of, it, it translates well, because, you know, if you, if you treat a crisis or a disaster as not having a having a human impact, then yeah, you're maybe not going to be successful at working within that space. Um, what what did you find, or what have you found? Are those elements of someone or trained people um, to be? good characteristics of being good at working within those spaces and communicating well? Well, I think a trait that surprises a lot of people is that they are not disaster junkies. Um, mm. I, I think a lot of people think of them as adrenaline junkies who like to um, encounter sort of like a movie version of the person who, oh my gosh, there's something terrible. I'm going to sail in and save the day because this is my thing. Um, and they're not like that at all um, for the most part. They're few, but for the most part, the ones that that 
adults that seem to have the longest careers doing this type of very difficult work are, are strategic, thoughtful people um, who want to help, but they are also driven by the realities of, of how to administer help and how to work through the systems that they are employed by in order to administer that help. And um, so I, I, I think that the, kind of that movie version that people have is not what I'm encountering um, mm. when I'm going out and talking to these individuals and learning more about their work. And, um, you know, they're, they're folks that, that want to help, but they also understand the goals of their organization and they understand um, the, the challenges that are created by whatever that disaster is that's at hand. So it's kind of a, it, it's been a lot of fun to, to really dive in and get to know these people. Okay, so I have a question and I feel like, well, so let me just ask you the question and we'll take it to the follow-up questions because there may be many. I feel like with what you've done in terms of getting the experience volunteering with the Red Cross, being thrown into these national emergencies. And, and I know that you also when um, the tornado hit um, our, our city, our county, our state, the university and all of that. I feel like for anyone that's trying to step into this type of role, it's very much well-intended people want to help you know and and what and we saw that in Tuscaloosa so many people because of affiliations or ties to University of Alabama they wanted to be here and help but I feel like they didn't have the training or the skill set and they didn't know what to do and it, it was sort of what you had described with nine where um you know getting around Tuscaloosa was hard enough but it was like not even knowing from an organizational perspective, what do we need? How can people help? And then when it hits home for like you personally and for everyone else, I feel like it, it puts you that maybe the experience is different, but maybe it's not. Can you tell us about that? Well, you know, that the part about not everyone being trained, but wanting to help is so true. Um, there were so many, um, small um, pseudo ad hoc organizations that popped up after the tornado because there were 62 tornadoes in the state of Alabama that day. So mm -hmm. there, were, there, were, there were people all across the state who wanted to help as well as the folks who came in. And, and I think a great example of that is after Hurricane Katrina with the Cajun Navy. Um, mm -hmm. the, the Cajun Navy was just a group of guys that had boats and, and were like, I just want to go out and get people out of their flooded houses. And organized, and they've trained their people. And they've become a nonprofit. You know, they've they they now can go into an area, and they have the training and ability to do things. Um, and so here we are in Tuscaloosa. And the, if you may recall, the day of the tornado, we lost everything that we needed to respond to a tornado. Yes. We lost. Yes. Police yes. departments, fire stations, we lost the Red Cross chapter, we lost the Salvation Army chapter, as well as the Salvation Army homeless shelter, we lost um, water facilities, um, we lost the entire garbage fleet, um, okay. you know, we, we lost everything that we needed to respond to that, that tornado, and, and then you had all these people that wanted to help so badly pouring in 
and they didn't have the training. They didn't have equipment. They didn't even have shoes, you know, closed toed shoes so that they could go into the rubble. Um, and, and they wanted to help. And, and, you know, at, at times when they were coming to the Red Cross shelter, we had to turn them away because we know you're well-meaning people, but, but you're a liability, mm. you know? And so it, and the folks that did come in who had skills or maybe had some training or, or had something that we needed in that moment, sure, we put them to work. You know, we had mm-hmm. folks walk in who could speak Spanish and became translators for us. Uh, you know, we had folks walk in who brought steel-toed shoes and gloves and could go help a family go through their home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, but for an organization like the Red Cross, for example, you're not a volunteer unless you've been vetted and there are background checks and, you know, <laughs> there's a, a lot of, a lot that goes into training these individuals. And so um, that's why so many other small groups popped up um, that they came together. They said, okay, we have chainsaws. All right, you go cut trees. Um, you know, we know how to make peanut butter sandwiches. Okay, you go do feeding. So it was um, uh, a lot of, and some of those carried over. Um, some of those small groups still exist in Alabama and, and, and help out when disasters come and then a lot of those people left. Um, there's also a lot of issues with disaster tourism um, and, and that's a big problem because people want to come in and gawk at what they see and take pictures. Yeah. Um, and then they want to uh, profit from that. Um, and, you know, there's, there's also looting. There's also um, people committing fraud coming in and saying, hey, I'll fix your roof. And they take your down payment and leave. Um, there, there are a lot of horrible things that also happen after a disaster. And, and that's why we really need communities to be prepared and have their own disaster action teams, whether it's through Red Cross or through CERT or through their local emergency management, um, you know, who, who can help the community and help protect the community from those outsiders that want to come in and take advantage of the situation. Okay, so here here's a, I'm going to call it a fun question that's... Yeah. that's like, um, how how many how much of the time when you are studying um, disasters and the interventions and, and communication and or working directly with organizations and teams do you say aha I think we should use this theory to um, guide and uh, guide our communication plan do you use theory um, do you contribute to theory tell us about the role of theory in all of this oh my gosh how much time do we have (laughs) (laughs) okay so in my weird brain I have a theoretical framework that I've put together (laughs) that I use in my research um but I also use it believe it or not when I'm going out and training people who put boots on the ground um I, I do a lot of media relations training with folks in the emergency management world and um, yeah, so there are actually these theories that I um, have used and I'm, I'm extending in a, in a book that I'm working on right now. Um, but the framework starts with high reliability organizations. Um, and this is an organizational behavioral theory that examines how an organization um, that operates 
regularly in chaotic situations can do it safely and successfully. Um, and so the, the original example for these studies was an aircraft carrier. Um, you know, aircraft carriers are very dangerous situations with jets coming on and off constantly. And if you drop a wrench on the ground and it gets sucks up into the engine, it destroys everything, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so higher liability organizations offers characteristics about these organizations that allow them to operate safely and successfully. Um, so I look at that as the environment in which the communicator is operating. And then the next step, um, I actually use a model developed by the CDC. It's called CERT. It stands for Crisis and Emergency Risk Communication. Um, this was a theoretical model that they developed for communicating after the H1N1 outbreak um, a couple decades ago in which the CDC did a terrible job of communicating and helping people understand the risk. And they developed with a bunch of academics and other experts, this model that guides the communicators and helps them understand um, not only how to do it ethically and with empathy, but also how to communicate to populations that are under stress um, that may be resistant to messaging as we've seen after COVID, for example, um, it, there's a lot in the model that really helps the communicator understand how to put together their messaging, how to deliver the messaging, um, and how to do it in ethical and compassionate ways. Mm. And um, it's a, and a big piece of that is psychological factors. Mm. Um, and so when you've got people that are under stress, um, and, and a, a really good example of this is Katrina, um, and there were, there were so many studies about why do people not evacuate? Mm. Um, you know, they were told the, the risks, they were told it was an imminent threat, why did they stay home? And looking at the psychology of people who, um, say for example, are older, mm -hmm. most people that died in Katrina were over 60 mm -hmm. because of the fact that they had survived so many hurricanes that uh -huh. in their mind, they're like, well, I've done it before. I can do it again. Uh -huh. um, or they simply didn't want to lose their house or leave their home. Uh -huh. um, the people most likely to evacuate were young adults with children mm. um, because they were taking care of someone else other than themselves. Mm. You know, um, but then once a disaster happens like 9-11 um, or, or another major disaster people can be so overwhelmed emotionally and mentally by what's happening that they can't comprehend messaging. Mm. Um, and so there's a, a psychological component in a CERC model that I'm examining in, in the book that I'm working on now. And then the third piece of that is psychological first aid. Um, and this comes from the mental health um, um. side of things and really examines um, how people are receiving these messages, what's the best way to communicate with them when they are under so much stress, there's so much uncertainty. Um, how do we deliver messages in a way that helps them make informed decisions? Mm. Um, so I, I have this three layered approach to the framework that I'm using um, that I'm very excited about because I think it's an important um, thing to examine for communicators. Um, I don't see a lot of this in the public relations literature in terms of how to communicate during crises and other emergencies. 
Um, and um, I can't wait to see how it all turns out. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question based on what you just talked about in terms of the way people respond during this time of crisis. And I think as you explained it, it all makes perfect sense. But what I'm wondering is when we talk about natural disasters or weather disasters for people that are in New Orleans or along a coast where, you know, like having a hurricane or a few every year is not uncommon. Do people learn, and I don't want to call it a mistake because it sounds judgmental, but do they learn from previous experiences and then behave or act differently the next time there's another natural disaster? From what I have found and read and other research studies, as well as what I've seen anecdotally, there seems to be a time limit on that learning. Mm. Um, so if you look at um, something close to home, our tornado in 2011, um, the year after that, when we started having tornado warnings again in the next tornado season, whenever there was um, any type of uh, tornado watch, you know, just the, hey, look out, it might come type of thing, people would, would start crying. Um, school children would have meltdowns in the classroom. Um, my own students would freak out um, and, and contact me before class and tell me they were too afraid to leave their apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw that with a lot of adults having sort of that PTSD of, I've, you know, we all experienced something terrible a few months ago, um, and they would be they would be way more cautious than necessary. Um, you know, if it was just a, a a bad storm, even not even at tornado level, they were very very cautious. Um, but as time wears on, you know, we have whole new generations of college students who don't know anything about the tornado. Um, you know, we have new faculty and staff who've moved to campus. Uh, we have people who it just becomes a distant memory. And I, I think there is a time limit on that. And then they lose some of that urgency and, and some of that um, level of concern um, because they're like, oh, well, the last three tornado warnings, we had everything was fine. Um, right. And and so it's, I, I do think there is some learning that, but I, I don't think it's long-term. Mm. Okay. So I have one final question um, before we move on to some, some fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so should we all, every single listener, uh, we go out and go to our local Red Cross and say, I want to get trained. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I mean, that would be great, um, but I, I know people won't do that, um, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, I, I think just being personally prepared is the biggest thing anybody could do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a flashlight, I have a whistle, um, I have um, four apps on my phone that are free, and most of them go off even before the National Weather Service alert goes off. Um you know, I, I know what to do with my dogs. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a pet plan. Um, I, I think that people who want to help, it has to start at home. Mm. And, um, so I would just, my recommendation is 
you don't need to go out and get training and join the Red Cross or join a CERT team or join the Salvation Army or whatever. You need to start at home. And mm-hmm. like, what is my plan at home? Do my kids, do we know where to meet up? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I lived in Salt Lake City before I moved here. And, you know, we were, they, they actually had the big earthquake um, during the pandemic. I don't know if y'all remember during lockdown, but the whole time, I was living in Salt Lake, there was that, they kept saying that the earthquake is coming, the earthquake is coming. And um, my husband and I, we had a plan. We would meet um, if an earthquake happened. And mm-hmm. I, I literally had a go bag that had my dog's medication. It had water, it had protein bars in it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and that's how we lived for three years in Salt Lake City. <laughs> and, um, and then, of course, the earthquake happened after we we moved away about 10 years later, which was crazy. Um, but I just think that if you, you know, get a simple kit and you know how to take care of your family and your pets, mm. that's the biggest thing. Um, everybody needs to be prepared for at least 72 hours to take care of themselves for 72 hours after any type of a um, disaster. Wow. And you know what? I think that's really important because I'm not sure. I think people might say, oh, I've got a flashlight. I've got bottled water. I have um, different things. But we might not necessarily know that we should have enough on hand for 72 hours. And, you know, going back to our tornado in Tuscaloosa you know Mm -hmm. places in the area didn't have power many didn't have water for much longer than 72 hours so I think that's um that's a great reminder thank you very much yeah and and the 72 hours comes from emergency management they're saying it could take up to three days for help to get to you Mm. um and so and and we saw that with our tornado um you know, it was about three days before all the help had arrived and was mm-hmm. in place and had food and had clothing and had shelter set, you know, well, shelter was set up that night, but um, because they had planned all that in advance, but really to be able to get out and help the community when 12% of your city has been destroyed, that took about three days to set up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like we're going to have to have a follow-up podcast recording because <laughs> I have at least 26 follow-up questions and I didn't get to, um, but we're going to shift to kind of um, the wrap-up section of this, but we want to make sure we get some recommendations from you that we can pass on with our listeners. So what is your favorite TV show or what are you watching right now? Well, you know, it's approaching mid-February, so the only thing I'm watching right now is college basketball. Um, (laughs) Same. And so, um, yeah, I mean, all the teams have played their in-state rivals at least once by now. We kind Mm -hmm. of have seen how the top 25 has gotten shaken up like a a bingo ball machine, you know? And Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I am so excited because, you know, to me, basketball, college basketball is the best because as we've seen from last year, you can have the, the smallest school with the smallest budget and you can win. Yep. <laughs> you can yep. beat the schools with a million dollar budgets and you don't see that in football or other sports. True. Um, That's and, so true. Um, 
So I, that's one of the things I love about basketball is it can be anybody's game. And, um, and we've seen that with Alabama this year, having yeah. an amazing season. Yep. Um, so yeah, I'm all about basketball. So I will be busy with that until uh, what, the first week of April, <laughs> wherever the championship is. So. I, I think maybe we will, we'll get you in. Uh, we'll, we'll have to do a, a college wide uh, March Madness tournament. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. That'd be fun. <laughs> um, what are you reading right now? Well, it should come to no surprise that I'm reading about disasters. Um, <laughs> but, um, but there is this book that I think that, that anyone who even has a slight interest in what's happening, especially after the earthquake in Turkey this week, mm-hmm. um, there is um, this really intriguing memoir by Jessica Alexander that I've I'm about halfway through. It's called Chasing Chaos. And it's a firsthand account of, um, of her work in humanitarian aid in places like Rwanda and Sudan. Um, mm. and, um, and that gritty, up close and personal account of what it's really like to go into these places and try to help. Um, and it's really fascinating. So and you don't have to be a disaster junkie to like it. It's a really cool um, memoir um, about about what it's really like. And as I'm reading it and looking at the news in Turkey, it's really like, wow, I can have a, a slightly better idea of maybe what's happening over there right now. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really interesting book. So do you have a favorite movie or a film that you've seen recently that you would recommend? Well, um, over the holiday, I did see her, um, and I was—I thought it was an amazing film. Um, and last summer, I had gone to Alaska and seen humpback whales for the first time. And mm-hmm. so, when I was watching this movie and seeing what they were doing with the whale-like creature in their world. Um, it just, it really touched me. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness, I wasn't expecting to cry at this movie today. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the, that Avatar movie was, is, is really standing out to me right now. Oh, I mean, the visual effects on that were stunning. It, it was, it, I couldn't even believe what I was seeing. Incredible. Absolutely. Those movies have come so far. Um, you know, think about the early Star Wars films. Yeah. <laughs> and then look at this. It's like, wow. <laughs> so true. So true. Last question is, if you were going to either be on a reality show, or if your life was a reality show, what reality show would that be? Okay. I could totally do this one. It is, it is making it. And it's a show about crafters who are given these challenges. And um, Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman are the, like the MCs for the show. And um, they give these normal everyday people challenges and say, here's a piece of string and some styrofoam and some stuff out of the woods and make me something amazing out of it and I'm like I totally can do that (laughs) so I would be on that crafting competition show like making it (laughs) that's that's excellent that's a great skill 
Yeah, I, I would. I would love to do that. I want to get on that show. <laughs> <laughs> Suzanne, it's been so lovely speaking with you today and learning more about the work that you do on the academic side, but also kind of in the real world to help people and communities and all of that. And and this has been so much fun. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. I really had fun sharing with you today. So thanks for having me. Absolutely.